0: Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI.
1: We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps.
0: Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone. Welcome to MLOps Live. We are back at it again. I'm Sabine, your host, joined by my co-host, Steven. It's Steven's birthday. Happy birthday, Steven.
1: Thanks, Sabine. Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. And with us today, we have Phil Basford. Hi, Phil.
1: Hi, everybody. Happy birthday, Stephen. Thanks, Phil.
0: (laughs) We'll be talking about some cloud topics today. Our topic with Phil here is building well architected machine learning solutions on AWS. So, welcome again, Phil. You are the head of solution engineering and CTO of AI and ML at Inner Wisdom. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Been in that post for CTO post for uh, nearly just at the turn of the year. And before that, yeah, head of solutions for the last few years at Inner Wisdom.
0: Awesome. So to get into a bit of your background, you have a degree in computer science and you kind of started out your career as a developer, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, In the social gaming space, I started out there and um, developed lots of things there and then moved to social media and chat and that kind of thing. And then moved on to the AI and ML uh, space about nearly four years ago, I joined in Wisdom.
0: Right. And uh, you mentioned you were at this company called Palringo, for example, or maybe you didn't mention it, (laughs) but that's where you got into adopting AWS for your company. So is that kind of generally where you got into more into cloud?
2: Yeah, very much so back then. That's three years back, but I was helping them migrate their existing kind of infrastructure and architecture and platform, everything to the cloud. And I was kind of one of the main architects behind that and instigators behind that and led them through that that period and got them into that. And then part of behind that was modernizing the architecture at the same point with microservices and forming a data lake and that kind of thing. How I kind of got into it, that my boss at the time joined and he just showed me the AWS keynote from Bernard Vogel's keynote from reInvent that year. And that kind of captured my imagination of what could be done. And then I attended a number of pop-up lofts and things in London, where some of the advocates are talking that kind of thing. And and yeah, that's kind of went from there. And um, luckily at Paringo, I got a good chance to apply some of that in real life and some good practical experience.
0: Awesome. So that sounds like a few quite comprehensive projects in that vein. But so, is did you really uh, get into the machine learning side of things at Inner Wisdom, or was that also at a previous point?
2: It was kind of the actual machine learning side of it, yes. It's very much when I joined in Wisdom, I hadn't done any actual kind of machine learning before. But at the previous place with Paringa, i had done, like I said, a bit of data analytics, data, that kind of thing. And I've got an old, this is my architecture video where we've done some kind of real-time recommendations, that kind of thing. We never got part to the point of actually using an ML recommendation engine, where ours was more... um, kind of uh, homebrew, rule-based kind of thing, but that was the kind of start of kind of using data to influence behaviors and that kind of thing. And then when I joined Inner Wisdom, that started me on machine learning properly and along the road of MOOps and everything that came with it.
0: Awesome, we'll be getting into the questions here in just a moment, Uh, but before that, let's welcome our audience as well. So just a reminder, this is an interactive Q&A session. Phil is here to answer any questions you might have about today's topic or MLOps in general. So all you need to do to ask is you can raise your hand here in Zoom and you can ask your question live or you can use the chat to type it out there as well and we'll pick it up. If you want to ask anonymously, you can also do that by sending a direct message to me in the Zoom chat. And just as a reminder, this is going to be released as a podcast later on, so you can catch up with it in that form as well. All right. So, Phil, back to you, to warm you up a little bit here before we dive in. How would you explain in about one minute what sort of architecting machine learning solutions well is all about?
2: I think generally it's understanding all the different layers of what actually it takes to deliver a machine learning solution and a model. And that's sort the way from understanding networking and that kind of thing, and then how to handle data, data pipelines, and then into the more sophisticated bit of understanding kind of ML pipelines and also understanding how they're different and how they're unique. And it comes with how you deal with data scientists and giving them opportunities and what they need, but also provide them with a lot of structure and rigor. So it's about that and then make sure that you deliver that for a purpose, bit whatever your personal project is or your company is or whatever it has to be purposely driven and um, focused on deliverables I would say.
0: That was very well summarized thank you very much Phil all right Stephen over to you.
1: Awesome thanks again Phil for sharing that insight and it's time to dive into lots of questions from the community but first uh, we sort of uh, have some premeditated questions and I think one of them is one I'm really excited to know and it's Kind of like, I just want to know from your perspective, what does it take to architect a good ML ML solution? Whether whether that's AWS or any other cloud platform, what does it take there? I think
2: it, it's with all actual solutions in the end. I think simplicity is actually the number one thing, actually, and we're we'll dig into that later. But for all the different pillars and stuff of the architecture framework and all different questions, but I think I've always tried to keep it. Any, like, architectural decision or design I make, I try to make it as simple as it needs to be to solve the problem. It it, it's, it can still be a, somewhat complex, but it has to be as simple as it can be. Also, minimize, and I read a bit about this the other day, there's some new papers out about technical debt and that kind of thing, making sure that you're making the right traders up the right time. No, there's going to be times where you want to invest and make sure that you deep on a certain area to make sure that it's done right because it's really critical and others where you can maybe choose to we come back to do that later but if you're going to choose that make sure that you leave that in a good state in a state where you know that you can come back and kind of service that that debt in the uh that debt and kind of sort it out so it's, it's about trading those things and making sure i suppose the one thing i learned throughout my career is that actually the technology you can be as good as and it can be, but you have to make sure, again, it comes back to business and all that. You have to make sure it is timely and that it will deliver what you want. There's no point kind of gold plating these things or taking too long about them. It is important to get something out, but make sure you get get it in a way that you can come back and revisit things later and improve it and without necessarily tearing it all
1: down and starting again. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I know, of course, with your work at Inner Wisdom now, it's kind of like a consultancy itself. And, love us to walk us through your thought process for designing and implementing maybe an ML solution or any use case. You have an example for on AWS, you know, with How do you decide like what services to leverage? You know, the team structure, design principles, coding patterns, and things like that. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's a great question. So, I always think we, we would start again. it's kind of if you we 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 call it different things than AWS, but it's the customer obsession thing. We call it kind of. Values and outcomes. Well, what we want to do is kind of understand really what we want that machine learning to do, what the um, solution will do for the client in terms of its business, where it is in the business, how they're going to use it, and make sure that it's got the maximum buy in possible from stakeholders and that kind of thing. So it's important to set all of that scene. And then, how we select services we are. It would generally lead itself from those requirements. So, if, if we see something that is a kind of a big monthly thing, we'll gravitate towards batch processing and more longer running jobs, be that maybe jobs and things like glue and that kind of thing for data processing and then SageMaker batch transform, that kind of thing. So we'll gravitate towards that. Or if it's more a real-time thing, we'll focus a lot more on things like latency and response times and scaling, that kind of thing. So we kind of then gravitate towards maybe using API gateways and lambdas and things like that. So it tends to be that. We tend to... So we try to keep it as simple as possible. So we try to kind of, if you think through a stack, we'll start like the most serverless we can. We always will try to do something as serverless we can. And then when we can't do that, we'll move down to Docker and then down to things like EC2 and that kind of thing if, if we have to, but we try to keep it as kind of minimize all the maintenance and put on as much as the, of the AWS um, cloud as possible. So we'll focus at the, the top end
1: and work down basically. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, in terms of the, the sort of the templates, now what I mean by template is that uh, does the team just have this sort of setting, set set-out principle that you say, hey, look, we are architecting a solution. Obviously, we have like the, maybe like the security is a crucial thing, but also maybe there's a lay-down template you follow. And also as a follow-up to that, of course, is the in terms of the culture, how does that influence the architectural decisions, those architectural decisions as well?
2: In terms of templating, and that kind of thing. The solutions themselves, when we generally build them, they're not actually that templated, but we'll be using elements beneath that to help things. So if we do need to use a network, we will have standard CloudFormation scripts that will set up all the VPC in a standard way, that kind of thing. Or if we're going to use things like Code Pipeline to build code, that kind of thing, and Code Build, then we'll have some standard ways of setting that up. But the actual kind of individual APIs, responses, that kind of thing will all be more or less tailored to the individual use case and the individual solution. So we're pulled against those two things. And internally, we have a kind of a design first kind of culture. So the project will come to a kind of a weekly core design support called design forum where they can ask from the rest of the company their expertise, how they would do it when they're faced with a problem. So we tried to pull on all of our different experiences throughout the team. And so in terms sort of composition of team, that will vary. And depending on stage of the project and the kind of what it is. So if it's an ML project, principally if it's at the discovery stage, it'll be very heavy on the kind of the data science end where we're doing EDA and experiments and that kind of thing. But as it moves into like an MVP or a full production system, it will move away from the data scientist per se and move more into other engineers. And we typically see like an ML engineer and, and a data engineer. And a few other people in, in that space, and uh, we generally have quite a, a tight bunch of quite expertise um, experts in their field on a, a given project. With article project teams, only probably about five to six people, but they're a team of normally um, quite experts in their relatively field. their
1: relative field. So, what do you mean experts? Do you mean like people who are really good in that domain? Yeah. So, you'll have a have what we call a data engineer, which will be very into
2: ingestion, ETL, how to land data properly, transform it, and get it available. They will know a bit about a bit about data ops and help on data ops pipelines. We'll have an ML engineer, which would be very experienced in designing and retraining of models and that kind of thing. And then, we, then we'd have we then would have other experts, so it, we tend to would have like, a, we call it a cloud engineer, to have somebody who is responsible for the infrastructure. So networking, that kind of thing. So we, we definitely focus it down on individual skills areas um, to make sure that
1: we get strong and people that know each domain quite deep and then bring them together. Right. Yeah. And in terms of culture, and when I think about culture, I'm thinking about, okay, maybe you start a project and the first thing you're thinking about is automating maybe like the dev or deployment environment, trying to ensure that you get something out like an MVPA. So how is the culture, like uh, what are those cultures sort of, and does it vary across the projects, or are they more consistent across each project? I
2: suppose it varies across the project. Fundamentally though, they're like the culture surpasses the kind of the skills. Our culture yeah. is passionate people, experienced people, people that take in know work, and you'll, and you'll see that for all the different engineers, all the different stages, the data scientists. What it means at different stages is different things. So for the data scientist, the uh, initial discovery of data, they're not worrying about how well that app's going to fit into a pipeline that's going to be created maybe at the MVP stage, but they are trying to do the best DDA they've got. They're trying to ex- do the experiments and come up with the best proof of concept, because they're trying to show the value of what they're trying to do and, and what it means to potential for the business that's just going to take their models. So we have a, like a strong culture on quality all the way through the lifecycle. It means different things at different stages,
1: that's for sure. All right, that works, yeah.
0: Before we head into the next question, we do have one from the audience. Sorry to cut you off. Muhammad, go ahead. Hi, Phil. Hi, everyone. It's Muhammad. I'm based in Pakistan and I'm data scientist by profession. So I have a quick
1: question. Like what are some of the best practice uh, deployment environment and development tools one can use for MLOps? That's a great question. So
2: MLOps in itself is like is quite a now quite a varied area. So it's it's important to understand the tooling. I think generally still from the data science point of view, things like a Jupyter notebook, Jupyter Labs, that kind of thing is still really good, but whatever that hosted upon, so it might be that that's hosted as part of the SageMaker system, or you may be using Databricks or something like that for your notebooks, or you might be standing up it yourself, that's still important. And when it comes to ML ops, I think I'm yet to see like one great tool that actually solves all the problems. I think when you're into the actual code, you still can't beat a proper IDE. And I mean, the likes of PyCharm and BS Code, that kind of thing, that's still fun. When we're production in use cases, we are fundamentally still writing Python code and using those kinds of tools where it's good it is to leverage the cloud for training and, and that kind of thing is quite important. Some of the efforts SageMaker have gone to uh, is quite good from AWS. With like studio, it's extremely good, but it's starting to hide lots of the detail from you. And us being practitioners, we sometimes want to be able to control certain aspects. So I don't think there is one great tool yet. I think that's still to be absolutely mastered properly. And I think it's that, particularly the mo engineering experience is the one. It's like how you debug and and step through stuff properly, really properly. How you run unit testing and that kind of thing in the integrated way is still the way to go. So I still think it's actually out there, but I'd still recommend using tools like MFLOW MF or SageMaker's Inbuilt Model Registry and that kind of thing to help improve your processes.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for your question, Muhammad. Thank you. Thank you for giving
1: me the opportunity. Awesome. Back to community questions and thanks for sharing that insight. And I think if you, if you notice from the title of this particular episode, it's probably you would have noticed that it's gotten from the AWS Well-Architected Machine Learning Lens Well-Architected Framework. And I lot love to know, Phil, how much has that particular framework from AWS influenced your decision in terms of design and implementing ML solutions on AWS? So it's one of the most, um, the real
2: architect thing overall is, is one of the most critical parts of how we go about any solution on AWS. It's kind of fundamental in how we design everything. I would say in a, um, in a very practical way as well, it's not just a theoretical way. We kind of are constantly reviewing designs and solutions for designs, and when they're live, reviewing the those solutions against all of the pillars all the time. And we try to embody most of the aspects of that everything we do. So it's been very critical to to how we build solutions. Most of our solutions would be deemed well-architected most of the time if we run a review on every single bit of them all the time, which we don't, but we, what we do do is we do run our own internal reviews all the time on the workloads to the same standards. There is times when our, even our own standards surpass some of the well-architected standards and sometimes we're a bit pre-them. So for a long time, they didn't have the ML lens and lots of what the ML ends is based on what we've seen happen and how we would go about stuff generally so it's been critical to how we've gone about designing solutions and that another best practice for AWS is what we evaluate our solutions against daily and when we view other p- our customer solutions everything they've built we view it against those pillars and conduct reviews and that kind of thing so it's critical. I suppose the one thing just being honest and transparent is it we're really hot on the five original pillars because they're the st- I still think they're a good architect, a good representation of the strong old engineering principles that we all should have, all should kind of know and build upon. The one thing still is a bit of a challenge is kind of the six peer and the sustainability. That's still um, a bit more of a work in progress. I think that's probably a bit of more work in progress for most of us, understand truly how to do stuff in a sustainable way and the trade offs and, and that kind of thing. And we'll probably do more of that. The one thing, like, the well-architected lens is a little weak on it it's in the security section. When it comes to machine learning specifically, how to protect your machine learning, there is a lot in it already. But we're going to see a lot more kind of adversarial attacks on machine learning and that kind of thing in the in the future as it becomes more critical to things. And I feel there'll be a lot more specific machine
1: learning stuff that will come in that side of the lens, that pillar of the lens in the not too distant future. Yeah. I mean, the, the good stuff about the doc is that it's um, constantly being updated. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, stuff. I do know there's going to be yet enough revision at any time now as well. So mm-hmm. that, that'll be
2: the third, I think like the ML lens is on its third iteration already, and it's only been out just under two years. So that both says that they're listening, evolving it to best mm-hmm. practice. And it also yeah. shows the how much the industry as a whole is moving in, in this area. The first lens wouldn't a copy of the ML lens probably wouldn't have had a feature store in it, but now it does have a feature store in it and
1: it's evolving as the the
2: discipline itself is evolving, I'd say.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And in a wisdom, of course, you've worked with like clients from big to small and then worked on a lot of projects and use cases. You've seen different implementations of ML solutions, but on the cloud and away from the cloud. And I would love to know what does an overkill solution, overkill solution, ML solution on AWS look like. And Have you seen anyone like that before? Maybe a use case?
2: Yeah, so generally overkill comes to, is more in the kind of, it comes back to like delivering it kind of fast. I see, the things I see overkill is when somebody took six to nine months to develop uh, the whole pipeline and everything to support a model to get it to production so that it's out. When And I've seen it when it goes out, then it's not used or it's not used well. So it's definitely that, the overkill is like spending too much time baking it too well. More focus needs to be on the kind of further up the stream to be able to get a kind of a even maybe not a full integrated solution to fully do it, but be able to run run it side by side with whatever's there currently. Or be able to test it in the wild and get actually feedback on it first before you go and invest six nine months because six nine months of a like a five person team is a lot of time and energy, and if you have not completely Proving it out, and tested out the requirements because I went back earlier. I said it's important to understand the holders and all that, but they will change their mind or they you'll misinterpret them, whatever. So, and and it's just critical to k- kind of make more iterative drops of these solutions to make sure you avoid that overkill. Because I've yeah I've seen projects take. Nine months and then don't see the light day after that. They're like, "Oh, why have you invested that much time? Time resource both us that or whoever in it." So that's the that's the main thing. And then, yeah, it's a, a lot of it is around tooling and that kind of thing. Don't complete. If it's like your first day of doing machine learning, don't try and understand all feature store, all of model registries, all of that from the get go. Just try and get something established first and worry about some of that, some of the governance later. That's obviously not the case in big enterprises. They have to worry about it. But on a definitely on a, on a the smaller scale, it is just make sure that you kind of deliver that first iteration as fast as possible. be as viable as possible. And everybody says MVP, I always focus on the viable bit. Everybody normally focuses on the minimal bit. The viable bit is important. That's the main thing. Don't spend too much Don't spend lots and lots of time developing complicated pipelines then because the model might not need to be training as fast as or as often as you need it, for example.
0: Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, data sets, and models. Save your production-ready models to a centralized registry and collaborate on your project. Across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to Neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And in contrast, have you seen on the Q solutions? Quote. <laughs> Yeah, it's a kind of a, it's a delicate thing based on
2: everything I just said. There's the opposite way of where kind of the low-code stuff I find quite scary. It's quite interesting if you're going to do something experimental, but there seems to then be an assumption that because you can do that initial experiment really fast, that the whole thing is going to be really fast and really simple. The, The main kind of, Conversation I always have is about resetting expectations. Like, okay, you might be able to produce that model in no time, but it's gonna gonna have to go back and ask you think how we're gonna scale it and all that properly. So it's that assumption sometimes, and then people throwing them out, and then realizing that after the event. That's the thing. it's like you can, like, SageMaker so Studio, brilliant. You can devise a model in in a few hours, no problem, and yeah, get it out there. Whatever, but be realistic about what you're doing and don't think that it's going to be the finished model, also the finished solution. That's the main thing. And particularly when, and this is no offense to data scientists generally, but it's, it makes it so simple that you just don't realize the complexity and you can get yourself into lots of hot water and, uh, in like how to do the network and all of that without realizing it. So, yeah, that's the main thing is, is it stage so make everything makes it so simple, but it's still. When you get scale, you want to meet a, a full solution and it's
1: still an investment. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think we have to jump right into the community questions now. We have a scenario-based question that was asked in the MLS community a while back. And this person asked client A, uh, a scenario-based question, of course. Client A has about 20 ML on deep learning models on-premise and exposed as Flask and, and client apps for consumption. Client B has... 200 models on-prem and exposed and integrated to various legacy applications. Both have various challenges with scalability, security, adoption, and performance and want to migrate to the cloud. What's the the different short and long-term AI strategy for them? And what are the key considerations and high-level approach uh, that you will be giving to these clients that will convince them to adopt cloud for ML? Yeah, certainly. That is a good question. So I would... There'll be two things. But for both
2: of them, I think I would try to understand how to more or less lift and shift those models from where they are into something on the cloud. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about completely putting them into SageMaker or completely modernizing them in terms of tooling initially. I would try to move even straight onto EC2 or just host them into Something like Docker straight away and just save that and try and work on more on what's causing them and, and trying to put them maybe behind a more stable API so that you can start changing stuff, stuff later. So I kind of, I would put it out from that regards and try to start working on decoupling where possible then from what's consuming them or simplifying what's consuming them so that I can then re-architect it a bit more between the backgrounds. One thing I would different between the use cases, when it's 200, 300 models, I would early doors be looking at how to manage them using maybe something like a model registry or, or something like that to make sure that I knew where all the models were consistently. And... I'd just dig deep on what the actual requirements were regarding retraining and that kind of thing. And then I would choose probably like the sweet use case. So it's very easy to choose the simple use case. That's not going to prove anything in in most of those regards. I choose a fairly reasonably complicated one, but probably not one completely critical to the business, but one important to the business. And then focus down on seeing if I can hard go back, re-architecting that. And I probably would look at how to break down its architecture, see if it's using the appropriate state stores, if it is using containers, if it's using that properly, maybe it's a case that you can maybe also break it up and once you understand more about its scaling and that kind of thing, and then either look at SageMaker to serve the model or depending on the need, just keep it inside the docker containers. And then longer term, I would be building out a lot more pipelines to manage those two, especially at 200... Use case. I, I don't think, unless it's two hundred different use cases, that's the hard one. And um, versus maybe uh, lots of models inside one use case. So assuming it's lots of different use cases, I don't think it's really feasible to, to keep an eye on all of them as a human at once. So I'd, I'd be looking at pipelines and how to monitor them all better and understand how they're being used better, and then focus. More on providing kind of operational layer at the top of them and understanding what's going on and reporting back on them. Because I don't think everybody's going to be focusing on all of those models at, at the same time. Because that would be a that be both. And so it would be about how to then accelerate new models and work on new use cases.
1: Right. And I think when teams hear experts talk about SageMaker or, you know, the suite of solutions, be it around SageMaker, they think about the cost, right? Obviously, you're building things on AWS, so definitely it has to scale at some point. But you think about the costs associated with SageMaker, and people talk about how expensive it is and everything. Have you sort of seen small teams leverage like SageMaker while managing to keep the costs low?
2: That's a great question.
1: SageMaker, yeah, there's definitely a
2: SageMaker tax involved. It's uh, even on the instance size, it's a little bit more than you normally pay. I think some of I want to give SageMaker its dues. Okay, so let's just talk about like training. Yeah, you can train a model on anything, easy to content, whatever, but I am going to struggle to be able to build something that has data parallelism, GPU parallelism, able to scale the GPUs, able to debug everything properly, maintain all the different Docker images and dependency packages correctly, be able to um, do all the metrics and reporting them back. All of that is, is for that tax it, it, is part of what you'd have to do anyway if you're looking at it. So I think like for training especially, actually SageMaker so is really good value because you'd struggle to do it with all the all those functionalities another way. Where it is expensive, I think, and they and they also starting to address this now, but it's always was with kind of the inference side and particularly around not real time, not batch. You know, it's very much you either have what needed the use case of a hundred. You seconds response time and you do an endpoint and you could warrant the endpoint cost because of the throughput and the criticality of the use case. That's very rarely do we see them type of use cases. Most of the ones we see is batch and that's kind of okay. But the nine share or another great Things like the event, occasional workloads, or workloads that don't ha- need a uh, like request every few seconds, once a day, or that kind of thing, and then and that's where Sage is quite expensive because you could setting up an endpoint for that amount of time is expensive, and they have not worked really on how to scale it to zero and all that stuff properly at the time. And batch was a bit too clunky and a bit too for that kind of thing. Even if you went down to micro batch, it still wasn't really responsive enough or was, um, for that kind of event-driven. Or occasional workloads, so we normally, to be honest, at that point we would have gone to SageMaker, um, not SageMaker. We'd have gone away from SageMaker and started using Lambda or something like particularly Lambda in that many regards. So we would, we typically would run those kind of models in Lambda for like event driven architectures or or low volume architectures. The main weakness being lack of GPU. And then that's expensive in its own right. But for most of our use cases, we'd have gone that down that route. Obviously, SageMaker brought out now the asynchronous endpoints and also the Lambda serverless the SageMaker serverless thing to address all that. But I would look in detail; it doesn't have all the features that all the other bits have. So I would, at this point, still be using Lambda because I would want the control. But they may get there with things like GPU eventually. We hope. And the other thing is, and Studio tries to address this, but sometimes, and it does an okay job at it. But it's the notebooks that, the the main <laughs> one of the main things we do is we have uh, in the wisdom is that we have automated scripts that turn off notebooks and stuff because they just get left on and left on with like a, a massive GPU attached that someone's played with. And it's fair enough; they've they've trained something in in what ten minutes and got a good answer. But then they go and leave that that size instance up for a day, and that's where you start getting some of the bills. The big bills come in, so we do a lot in that kind of area. Just make sure that things are turned off when they're not being used. That kind of
1: thing. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. Feel so, okay, this question is from the community, and this person is asked generally: What are the problems associated with building ML solutions on the cloud?
2: Problems are it's we so most. The hardest thing, and that's why maybe the cultural thing is significant in wisdom sometimes, because we try to have a very us culture and win it together kind of thing. It's the the day you have to turn like a notebook into a production use case. And very few data scientists can write like application quality Python code. It's, It's not. What they're doing, they're experimenting with data and models and that kind of thing. And likewise, it's very hard to find data developers that understand what machine learning is and that kind of thing. So it's that that's where the most critical skill is. Luckily, we have quite a few of them in the wisdom, but it's that how to take that notebook and productionize it properly, understand that logic out there who's looked at science code, it's sort of pandas frames and manipulation and all that. And it, and it does great stuff. It's really powerful, but it's not going to be performant generally. And it's not in a way that most engineers would work and understand it. So that's where we see kind of the most difficulty things stuff in the cloud. That and it's generally education of things like turning things off and, and serverless and that kind of thing. We still see lots of people... Approaching it like from a kind of a budgetary point CapEx so it's still that education of what the cloud really is and the, and how it can scale and that kind of thing. The other thing from an ML space, if you step back from the actual engineering side of it, the kind of other thing is from a from the business point of view because most cloud spend is still on infrastructure, IT that end. So most of the cloud budget per se comes through the IT CIO route. Still, for us, is, is making it's trying to operate not necessarily in that space or alongside that space, but also be part of the business. And the hardest thing sometimes is bringing those worlds together. I have been on a number of gigs where IT is just operating in its original mindset, and it's fair enough to do that in a certain way. And businesses are operating completely different. And really, to be able to like be have a data strategy, data centric. And then using machine learning, you have to change all of that really to leverage it. It has to be a a very different relationship. Uh, That's the most cultural change in a business to be more data-driven fundamentally and see the data as the asset and machine learning as a way
1: to exploit that. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Phil. We'll jump right into another instance-based question. And this was asked in the MLS community by Gagan. He's working on consuming an entity recognition API on product data and is required to do it at scale. Scenario is that an endpoint, an API endpoint exists, which is deployed on ML, AWS SageMaker. There are a lot of artifacts and texts on which he wants to apply the entity recognition API. And these artifacts are stored in a SQL database and they need to be pulled and the API applied at the artifact scale. The predictions also need to be stored back into a database so another service can retrieve them. Do you have any suggestion on what kind of architecture would make sense here? Maybe a design pattern or something like that?
2: Yeah, certainly. I would abandon the perceived real-time nature of this. Unless there's another reason that's not apparent in those requirements in, in that question. I would abandon the real-time nature and look to go to batch because of the volume. And then I would split it up, split the, backup, the batch up into a couple of faces. One that gets all the data as a dump out of the database in the most efficient way, maybe storing it in something like S3 that the data science or the model can process. And then I would then do a batch transform with that model. And then with the results in S3, load it back into the database as a kind of a subsequent step. The reason why the batch is quite interesting and the reason why, like, because I think they said it was like SageMaker API, is that... The SageMaker Batch API and Endpoint Real Time Endpoint API is actually the same API. It's called differently by SageMaker, but even when SageMaker does its batch transform, what it will do is will batch up hundred or thousand individual requests to an the Endpoint style interface and send it through. So it's still actually using that kind of same logic. So you shouldn't really need to change too much of your code in that regards to be able to take that from a and turn it into like a batch paradigm. And that's probably the most efficient way of doing predicting against millions and millions of rows in, in a database. The other option, and you'd have to dig into the exact detail, is if you could bring that into something like Redshift, you could then use the ML Inside Redshift feature. So that's a way of then being able to run that directly on that data set. So that maybe is another a possibility is to, is to put it into somewhere like that and run an run ML process like that on that data. But I think in that regards, it would take more of a coding change and change to how the model is constructed or how the inference around the model is constructed to allow that to
1: happen. Yeah, I hope that's a satisfactory answer for Gagan or great insight there, Phil, that one. So I'm guessing this person is uh, probably also runs a consultancy but they're asking, you know, what are some of your worst stories building AWS, ML solutions on AWS? Having worked with lots of clients, of course. <laughs> yeah, they're all, the, all and most of them are the same and it comes back okay. to
2: the business bit. It's like, I'm always shocked, like, I mean, when you've delivered this stuff for months or you, it costs you, you so much to train it or whatever, and then you turn around and like the business, oh yeah, we're not using it or it's not right and that kind of thing. I'm always shocked by that's the worst thing is like when these people have missed so much time and they've and it's being identified as something really important for their business, but then it's not actually used. That's still the most Scary bit. Other war stories is yeah, is people leaving notebooks on for hours or days and not coming back to it. That's always, that's why we always put a bit more rigor around that. The other thing is it comes a bit about the solutionizing of the previous question is you're using the right tool for the right job, and it might not ever be immediately obvious, and you might have to optimize it. So a good one. Was that we were writing a pipe? We, were, we had some code given to us, and we were writing this pipeline, and we hosted it in Docker, and it was doing a pre processing step of relabeling all of its data before it trained the model, some of the stuff. It was on about probably a data set of like 300 million rows, and it was a kind of a geographical thing, and it would take Days to actually label this data. Two or three days to actually enable this data properly, based on two, data in two separate tables that you could easily link, and load it. Have to load it in batches into the pre-processing stage, into the container, and everything. And it's going to t- we we're going to face quite a job to scale it. And then me and the DE at the time, uh, or the data, also a data architects, sat down and thought, "Why are we doing it like this?" Because we'd been given this code, and we thought that's how to do it. And then what we did was we um, luckily for us like Redshift had recently launched at that point, and this was about two years ago, geospatial features inside Redshift. So we're like, okay, why don't we just do it in Redshift then? So we wrote a bit of SQL in Redshift and it was a simple kind of update statement in the end. Nothing actually that complicated, but applied the same kind of logic as the Python. We got it down for like two or three days to about three hours and then eventually down to about an hour to label it millions of rows. That was what Redshift was really good at. So that's one of the main things is is you see a lot of the data preparation done in the data science world. Sometimes it's better to push that into the kind of the data engineering world because they might be able to use a, the full scales like Redshift to help you. So it is about, I think, sometimes just, yeah. Take a step back and looking at and using the right tool for the right job. And it might not be, and you have to kind of take egos a bit out of it because it's like, oh, that's yours. No, the best technology for that is to use shift and that sort of stuff, etc. So it's important to break that down and use the right tool.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's the right tool for the job. Okay. Another question from the community, and this was asked by Niraj, and he's trying to evaluate different experiment tracking tools. You know, what are the advantages of using SageMaker experiments? of our MLflow besides being a managed service on AWS? That's a great question.
2: So I am personally not that experienced as data from the data science background. As you know, more from the developer background and the engineering background. So I haven't done too much exploration of, of both. I have data scientists that use both in the team. And hand on heart, they actually say MFO is slightly better, more comprehensive at this point than the, the SageMaker experiment tracking. So I'd always kind of look to see if that's, a viable way to go. But you do have to think about obviously the, the managed service aspect of it. On AWS, there isn't a flow offering at all in SageMaker, unlike other cloud providers. So if you there will be the complexity of now to run having to run it. So either you have to stand it up yourself on a Kubernetes cluster or if you're lucky enough to have a Databricks hanging around, maybe in Databricks, but you still have to stand it up and you look after it. So that's that is an important consideration but it's tool. But SageMaker is not that bad, and we do use SageMaker experiment tracking. The one thing I would say, and it's kind of, it sounds like I'm popping up SageMaker Studios a lot, is that with the projects and everything, it's really integrated into studios heavily um, these days. But you can't; it's hard to actually see some of this stuff outside the studio. So just be a little bit careful about how you're going to use it. Like Feature Store is another good example. It's like there is good alternatives to features still out there. I and mean, the DevOps one is kind of hidden away a little bit inside Studio. So just make sure you're using the, um, you take that into consideration as well. So I would go on the MF Flow route because it's generally quite nice. But AWS, Token Maker Experiment is, is and projects is an option if you want to go that route and will work out for most people.
1: Yeah, I think the vendor lock in concerns is, is often a huge one we see as well with teams. Yeah. Things. Yeah, exactly. Vendor locking is a significant concern. I don't think it's a significant concern necessarily
2: at like the startup end, but definitely at the print mm-hmm. enterprise end. Um, so it's always an important requirement if you want to take that into consideration.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Sabine, I think we have a question.
0: We do have a question in chat about deploying models to production. Peter Dudfields is asking, I was wondering if you have any experience in when to productionize a model. Too early and we don't get enough, don't get the full model or restrict. Data scientists too late. The project is late and has little impact. So, do you have any insight to share?
2: When to it's too late? It's we tend to have three kind of three to four distinct stages when we start to productionize a model. Okay, so you have the initial experiment stage, pilot stage, MVP, POC kind of stage, proof that it's possible. Then you take it to the next MVP stage. Mostly at the MVP stage, we're we're also looking at Building the best model, we are looking at the data pipeline, and the ML ops pipeline. We necessarily won't completely focus on maybe automating all the triggering of that pipeline. For example, we'll defer that maybe to another iteration. So just doing it based on drift or something like that. Then we won't focus on that initially. We'll. Put the pipeline in space so we can recreate the models and uh, we can trigger later, but we wouldn't necessarily put all the automation in place. Again, it's it's that whole, we don't want to take nine months and uh, kind of miss the point and um, we want to do it over incrementally. So first thing is to put value, next thing is to like deliver the first iteration to make sure it's good. And then it's probably building out some of those more rigorous controls around it, um, Regarding that. I'm just trying to think of any other kind of a good example too late or too often, they they do happen, but I can't think of a good example. I suppose there is times when you kind of question if a model is actually really needed, if you can use statistical modeling or if you can use uh, like an optimizer or, or something like that instead. So I think it's important to think sometimes, oh, are you using ML for the sake of ML and maybe to look at something else that you can maybe get deployed quicker? That's an approach I've seen done as well to kind of offset some of that too early risk is... Do a more statistical based thing first and then build the model later once you know that you've got the case for the model and you've defined the problem better. So that's quite important. Again, it's it maybe in certain domains like document processing, intelligent document processing, it's important to focus on some of the harder questions regarding different formats and that kind of thing first. So, on uh, things like that, the, the viable bit might be a higher bar to judge things because you need to make sure that it is very accurate before it, before it is out. That's probably the, the main thing. So uh, that's a kind of a broad answer, but I think basically it, it's uh, try to be a more flexible in approach and maybe some of the ML approaches you use to offset the likelihood of that kind of too late or too early kind of thing. You know, I've, just, I've seen people finesse a lot of TensorFlow models, but maybe just a more
1: simpler model might be more appropriate initially or something like that.
0: Mm. Awesome. Thanks for
1: sharing. Yeah. Awesome for Okay. So, this person is asked in um, the community and said, Could you share use cases where you save the client a lot of money by optimizing their existing architecture? I can't name
2: names, mm-hmm. but yeah, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> there's t- the biggest thing to watch on both the ML side, data side, and okay. my previous experience is egress cost out of AWS. Okay. So especially when you're going like multi-AZ or multi-regional multi-accounts, they're the things to be really careful about. If you're sending lots of data or predictions around, that can be quite expensive. I've seen quite phenomenal savings for putting in things like VCP endpoints, things like that for just lower the cost maybe because you're sending big files into S3 and out again between accounts and if you don't do that, you'll get egress for your um, and that kind of thing. So that's the most expensive part is where I've expense is, yeah, is that kind of area, sending stuff in and out. That's 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 to be avoided or to be optimized. And the other thing is people, yeah, is, is the liberal use of instance types and firing up massive notebooks and that kind of thing. So yeah, I think that's the main, main areas I've seen just egress is so expensive. I've seen that a lot in my, not just in the wisdom before in wisdom as well. E- egress is easy, expensive. So make sure that you're taking that stuff into consideration when designing your solutions. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. This person asks, uh, how best can a team with data privacy concerns, architects and build an, an ML solution on AWS? Have you had situations like that with clients?
2: That is. Great question. So there is only <laughs> there's only answer. And I'm going to sound like I'm I'm the is to encrypt everything and lock down encryption on lots. And that's one of the uh, I was saying about earlier how like it's really easy for data scientists to go and knock out a model free Studio. It's like the encryption of data is one of the things that they might not completely get. And to layer the encryption and that kind of stuff. So we spend a lot of time in the encryption area making sure that it's a layered as well that we're using different keys for different areas, that kind of thing to kind of reduce those data, the data privacy concerns. We try to limit what data scientists can view or any engineer can view really so that you don't give away PPI, PCI, confidential company information all the time. When you're gonna do, you wanna put lots of auditing around it. So we obsess a little bit around making sure that the auditing in place, when it gets to those kind of big concerns, that's when we see a lot more time and things like a multi-account architecture and breaking and isolating concerns and that kind of thing. So yeah. we would kind of focus in that and make sure that you limit the roles in whatever account they are in to limit those things. And have a if people need that data or need a maybe they don't need completely the PCI data or whatever, or the PPI data, maybe you can make a, a sanitized version enable available for things like maybe like a recommendation engine. You don't need to include people's first name, surnames, but they're buying trends. Fair enough. You can probably include that with tokenized out, like that kind of thing. So we see a lot of that and just building lots of kind of, yeah, segregation into things like S3 or separation schemas in Redshift and lots of kind of controls through multi-tenancy and that kind of thing. We see a, see a lot of that, both from a, yeah, from personal information point of view and from company information. There's a couple of solutions we built where, the parent companies had a number of subsidiaries, and each subsidiary can't see what each other subsidiaries done. So we've kind of built multi tenancy into in a couple of machine learning use cases as well, where we've had to ingest all the separate data, then run three separate processes or n number processes, and treat everything quite uh, separate, and uh, to make sure that we address those kind of concerns. So right. data privacy is kind of the main thing. The other top tip, and I don't know, and it's a good thing to give out to everybody, uh, uh, just be immensely aware of it on AWS, actually. Uh, it's not particularly because they're bad at it or they're naughty or anything like that. Lots of yeah. the AI services will have opt-in or opt-out ability to share data. So like um, things like, I just pick on Textract, for example, that would have been run trained against millions of documents generic documents, that's fine. But what they do is there's an option to retain your documents in the system for them to train on it later. So if you have any strong privacy concerns around what kind of documents you're doing, make sure that you always untick them for any of the managed services. So just watch that with the, yeah, some of the AI managed services and the other managed services, they may retain copies of your data for their own purposes.
1: So that's normally clearly stipulated in the security section of the service. Awesome. Awesome. And Phil, we are running out of time, but maybe just a final question on my end. curious, what are like the most underrated AWS ML services that small teams can leverage today? It's not being talked about enough, or they don't just know about it. I think it's coming
2: back to some of the ones that I just mentioned is that you can do quite complicated or not complicated, but quite useful stuff with some of the, the AWS uh, um services. So We've done a lot in the intelligent document processing area recently. And we've chained extract, Comprehend, maybe Translate all together using step functions. That kind of thing. And got a long way there. And then we did customize it and built some own models behind that for our clients and that kind of thing to, to make it even highly more accurate. And we applied other techniques. But you can kind of, especially at like a, the proof of concept stage, you can kind of, quite easily throw some of those AI services together and prove something without necessarily going too far into any ML or any ML space, really. You can kind of leverage them. So I would I would explore more that kind of area and leverage some of those services if I was just getting started with ML. That's the biggest tip I'd give myself four or five years ago when I was in that recommendation engine. At the time, if AWS's recommendation engine was out, I'd have probably just plugged it in and given it a go, and it probably would have done a pretty good job Probably better than the statistical stuff we were doing at the time. But there
1: you go, that would be the advice I'd give myself when I was starting out four years ago, five years ago. Awesome, awesome. Of course, that's the best practice as well. So thanks a lot for sharing that, Phil.
0: All right. Yeah, it's time to wrap things up here. Thanks so much, Phil, for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Before we wrap things up, how can people follow you online and connect with you? Would you mind?
2: There's a couple of ways. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, so reach out on both those platforms. Also, occasionally I put out the old, old YouTube video either through my own channel or through a channel or through some of the community stuff. So I'm also involved in some of the AWS community days, summit stuff. So I put stuff out about that. If I can just say one last thing though. So for those who are AWS fanatics, it's AWS reinvent. At the end of the year, I'll be going, it's in Las Vegas. They're putting out the session catalogue tonight. put a bit, bit of a blog out early about what I want to see in the sessions, but they're putting out the session catalogue or the reserve seat for the session catalogue. So if you're going to reinvent any of the other people out there or fans, then uh, make sure you jump on that. I think it's six o'clock, so it's in about an hour's time. So make sure you do that. It's a bit of a shout out to those who go to Reinvent and want to see some ML analytics sessions there or just see me and you can just pick, um, find me in the amongst 60,000 people, so hopefully.
0: Awesome. Good to know. We'll make sure to check that out. All right. Thanks so much, Phil. We'll be back again in two weeks. And next time we'll have with us Laszlo Schragner. We'll be talking about writing clean production-level ML code. So don't miss that. And uh, just another reminder that you can catch up with these discussions as podcasts podcast later on. So in the meantime, see you on socials and in the MLOps community Slack. Thanks, everyone. Take care. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events.
1: And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes.
0: Thanks and see you next time.